Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 14. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Who are you? Ask me who I was. All right, all right, who were you then? In life, I was your partner. Jacob Marley. Oh, What do you want with me? In that case, can you sit down? I can. Well, do it then. disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You, you might be an undigested bit of beef, <laughs> a piece of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave in you, whatever you are. Oh, what a merry Christmas day! Hear the joy 
Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we're going to take a look at a piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether or not it's worthy of its reputation or its place in the canon. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, and with me is my always lovely festive co-host, the Linus to my Charlie Brown. <laughs> Stella. I guess that is that's probably true, maybe. <laughs> that might be a good representation. Um yes, hello. You know, this is the time of year where all the posers come out of the woodwork and start wearing moose sweaters. But really we know we know the true moose admirer and that's me because I'll wear a moose sweater all year round. I think sometimes people also the thing that bothers me is like I, I can tell the difference between a moose and a reindeer. Oh, good for you. Well, because reindeer's antlers and moose antlers are, like, in different positions on their heads. They absolutely are. Yeah, and um, some people can't, like, tell the difference between between meese and reindeers. Yeah, and you've got the bell, which is the beard-like thing that mm-hmm. hangs down. And then deer in general and reindeer, I would consider their antlers more branch-like. And mm-hmm. moose are, like, fuller. It, you don't really see... The branches, it's just very thick, and they're all connected at the bottom like a web, and then they come up, and you see the little. So yeah, there, there's some distinction there. Yeah, yeah. There was I saw a story the other day on the news where this moose just kind of was running around a Toronto suburb. <laughs> had like they had like helicopter footage of it, and I'm just looking at it. I showed it to Amanda, and I was like, "This is the most Canadian thing right now." <laughs> they do well. I have a friend that's in Vancouver, and he'll send me news articles. Like they just report on news articles, so I get a kick out of things that I see all the time. Oh yeah, they have like moose and caribou crossing signs like all up in the Pacific Northwest oh, and uh, up in. That's where I need to live. Yeah, you know how I know how a reindeer's antlers look like? What they look like? Um. From watching Rudolph? Yes. The Rankin-Bass Christmas special. The Rudolph the Red News Reindeer. You know, the one where Santa's a fascist and Donner's a sexist and everybody else is a, is a, is a sure. bigoted pig. Yeah. yeah. Best character on there to me is Yukon Cornelius. But oh, I and I like how he licks things. He, like, he taps yeah. at it and, then, and then he like, yeah. All right, so we are we are Christmas is a great is a great topic to bring us in because we are uh, going to be discussing a Christmas Carol, which is easily objectively a Christmas classic. I mean, it's one of the Christmas classics. I, I don't think I don't think anybody is really going to argue 
with me on this. You may you may not like it, mm. but there is a place for it in terms of Christmas classics. You know, depending on whatever your preference is. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to bring us in by by just uh, asking you and and um, instead of instead of doing this whole emoji title thing, sure. Um, your favorite or one of your favorite Christmas traditions. Yeah, I think as the youngest uh, and being in the the house the longest, and I think getting more opportunities or more um, fun responsibilities than my siblings, I always enjoyed being the one to actually place the gifts underneath the tree. And even now when I go home, my parents have kept the gifts in sort of a box, and then they allow me to put it under the tree. So that's one of my favorite things. Running a train uh, around with my dad. My dad was actually, he worked for Conrail, and then he just retired, but he worked for the Federal Railroad Administration, so trains was a big thing. And it was something that uh, we always enjoyed together, and he'll be leaving his train. I don't want to think about it but he's going to be giving me his uh, all his train sets and the final thing is I don't do it anymore but when my brother was uh, still at home we would hide a pickle oh, yeah, and yeah. have you heard of this yeah well, we, do, yeah, that too. we that, do that too yeah so that was a lot of on fun. the tree like we have a pickle yes, ornament we hide it on right. the tree yeah yes and then whoever first finds the pickle gets a special gift and usually on uh, Christmas Eve because otherwise it's Christmas is sacrosanct and you don't open any gifts. But I think that would mainly be the the big stuff. I usually now this is here here I'll do some intimate things right here. I like to sleep by the tree. But because when I was younger I did not want to be out there when Santa was coming, right? I wanted to be sure that I was post Santa. I used to uh, what I call put myself on bladder control, which means I did not go to the bathroom before I went to bed. So then I would have to be woken up in the middle of the night by my bladder in order to go to the bathroom. And it was usually at the right time that I could then shift and go sleep out by the tree. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of planning. It we is. Well, you know, when you're younger, you don't want to catch Santa, or he's not going to give you gifts that you feel like you deserve. We weren't allowed downstairs until, like, both of my parents were ready, which means my father had to shave and make the coffee. Like, we would sit at the top of the stairs for, like, what seemed like forever. And then my mother had to do, like, one of those pictures where we were both sitting at the top of the stairs. So now, the only rule we have as far as this concern is, like, we tell Brett he can't be up before 7 o'clock. And Brett has a Christmas tree in his room. Wow. Well, we bought like a $20 fake tree from Target last year for him. So it's like three feet tall or so. It's like it's this little tree. And so what we did last year, we started a new tradition where we will place like little things under the tree for him to open. Like when he gets up on Christmas morning, because he's usually up before us. Mm -hmm. So like I am like right around now. When I go to the comic store, instead of giving him his comics when I get them, I will hold on to them and I'll like put him them under his tree and like maybe an extra book or something like that. Aww. And just to entertain him and stuff and, and so he can hang out for like twenty minutes while the two of us get ready and you know I'll put the coffee on a timer. Mm. But then we'll we'll fire up well we have the fireplace working now. Maybe we will fire up the Yule log as well, the T V one. And um and get the Christmas music going so that when he comes down, like it's like, hey, it's Christmas. So, um, 
A couple of ones that like that date back from when I was a kid. Um, those advent calendars that are chocolate, like you. Oh yes. Yeah, my grandmother. Um, my grandmother worked at a deli for God eons until she finally you know, retired or whatever. And um, every year she would buy those for like all her grandkids. You know they're not very expensive. They're like what two dollars each. Um, and uh, so. Harris Teeter started carrying them a number of years ago, so I started buying for one for Brett every year. So he he gets to start opening his Christmas chocolate um, on Friday, as we record this as on the Oh yes, and um, so that 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 is really cool because it's my grandmother. Um, because it came from my grandmother. And another thing is that um, my she used to have like candy, you know, her grand grandparents have candy dishes in the house, and <laughs> usually filled with hard candy. That like when you pick up one of them, the rest of them and the dish comes with it. But um, she used to fill them with uh, a lot of them with those Andes mints, you know, the little chocolate mint things, the Andes candies. Yes. So um, now my sister and I love those, but um, so, but every year I send my sister a a thing of Andes candies for Christmas. Uh, so that's another thing. And then um, I'm trying to think of another one that we do. You know, like we do a lot of the usual stuff, like make cookies and things like that. But one thing I've actually really enjoyed being in Charlottesville over the last few years um, and having a kid who can now like, you know, is a little is, is portable, but is also very helpful is that Brett and I will go shop for Amanda and then Amanda and Brett will go shop for me. But the two of us, Brett and I will go to like local food related places. So we'll like trek up to Yoder's up in Madison and walk around there and buy like all these like candies and cookies and things. And then we'll like go to like the plow and hearth store and we'll go to like, he and I'll go to like a few local stores and buy um, food and, and, and wine and things like that. And, and I put it together as like a gift basket for my wife because it's like all local food and wine and stuff like that. And it's like really fun. And, and, and he loves going with me to do that. So I really like enjoy doing that, especially if you go up to Yoder's in Madison, cause they make really, really good baked goods. <laughs> do you pet the goats when you go up there? Uh, we did last year. So if we get the chance, we will. Um, so, but I'm, that's why I'm looking forward to the fact that we have a longer Christmas break. Or at least we have more days before Christmas this year than we did last year. So I'll be able to actually take my time and not have to like rush around the weekend before Christmas to finish it up. So But yeah, I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to Christmas this year quite a bit. So we already have our we have our tree up, but it's not decorated. So we'll decorate mm. it this weekend. And we put the lights mm-hmm. in the house and we put a bunch of decorations up when we got home from Thanksgiving. This segues very nice into what is a Christmas tradition and what was a Christmas tradition started by Charles Dickens back in the 1840s. And that is, well, we're not going to read a Christmas carol. Uh, we're gonna, we've read a Christmas carol. We're going to discuss a Christmas carol. And before we go into that, we are going to do a pretty extensive historical background section for this because this, this has not only um, a really, really just really interesting background to it and and its legacy is really interesting but we've actually got a whole section on adaptations which is something that we don't usually go to in depth but a christmas carol has been adapted so many ways that it would be neglectful for us to not cover that 
But before we do that, we're going to do what we usually do with this, which is I'm going to ask Stella, since I'm, I'm, uh, I'm leading the show here, what is your history with A Christmas Carol? This, I guess, is my history. Reading it, this is the first time that I've ever read it. Uh, I feel like maybe I had read excerpts or smaller adaptations, but never its full, unadulterated form. And I think really my only experience with the tale, because I knew of it, of course, was watching any of those adaptations. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to say which adaptations, or are we doing that later? Oh, we're going to get into that a little later. Okay. Um, mine is a little more extensive. Um, I had probably read this in either in bits or pieces, or I had read like a children's version of it when I was very little. You know, so like one of those simplified little golden books type of things. Um, I do remember it from various adaptations. I knew the story very early on because... Um, I, my my favorite adaptation I saw when I was very little, so I knew the story of of Scrooge. Um, the first time I read the text in full was in high school. I was assigned to read it not in English class, but in economics class, and we discussed what Dickens was saying about the economic conditions in um, England at the time he wrote it, and talked about capitalism. And, and use that as the discussion and, and the effect of capitalism on social class and things like that. So it was a really, really interesting way to look at a book that is, you know, that you would expect to be assigned in, like, say, English class. Um, I think I've read it, like, maybe three or four times in total. I know that, obviously, this time, I know I assigned it years ago when I was teaching a 12 advanced class, um, and we were doing British literature, so I assigned it in November, December, and we discussed it. Um, and I'm pretty sure I might have just read it on my own. And I did listen to Gene Hendricks reading it on the Hammer podcast, Hammer Strikes podcast, uh, a couple of years ago. So uh, it's not something that I come back to every year, but it is has been one that has stayed with me uh, for many years, and I've come back to every once in a while as far as something to read in and around uh, in and around Christmas. So with that, what I'm going to do is talk about uh, Charles Dickens. I'm going to talk about his not really his life, but a little bit of his life when he was writing this, and then uh, the background of the publication of the book. So Charles Dickens is easily one of the most well-known authors of 19th century England. His works are closely associated with the Victorian period. Dickens was born in 1812, and he died in 1870. He wrote a number of landmark novels throughout his career, including Oliver Twist, Great Expectations, David Copperfield, and A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Two of those are actually on my kind of master list for our podcast. All of those, they are they are all well-known, of course, but it is this novella, A Christmas Carol, that is his best-selling and most famous work in the United States. The book was originally published on December 19, 1843, and it came out around the time when England was, as a society and culture, was re-exploring and re-evaluating its Christmas traditions, among which were the singing of carols and the inclusion of a Christmas tree as part of the celebration of the holiday. And it is fair to say that a number of our current date traditions, as well as the way we celebrate the holiday, do come from Victorian England, at least through this revival that was going on in the mid-1800s. 
And A Christmas Carol itself helped here, especially since the word Dickensian is often used in conjunction with Christmas, and the images provided by Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol are some of the most celebrated and favorite. And I made a note here that my mother has one of these like ceramic Christmas villages. Have you seen these things? Like you can buy at like, you know, hoity toity gift shops these things um these houses and things and you can create like a little Dickensian Christmas village that she sets up like that you she used to set up on our huge nineties era entertainment center and and things like that. So here I thought Dickensian sort of meant a, a state of not like poverty or despair, but just like being in a rough place and sort of I, having to bring yourself up out of it. Like, you know, because you think Oliver Twist or David Copperfield sort of starting with not a lot and having a tough. So, yeah, but I think, so I think this it's is interesting. Both. Okay. So, because I've heard it used in that sense too, and it totally applies in that sense. And what I've heard Dickens or Dickens Christmas or Dickensian Christmas, I've heard of this sort of like all of the pretty nice things that you associate that and just ignore all the bad crap in the in a christmas carol that type of thing you know um so there's this there's this love for this sort of charles dickens christmas in in uh in a lot of our culture so and i've seen a lot of people who were like really like that idea of this victorian era christmas but yes the, the word dickensian definitely does apply to like you know poor little orphans Please, sir, may I have some more? And things. Um, one day we're going to get Andy Leyland on here just to yell at us. <laughs> for, for bad English. Well, we've for done bad how English many stereotypes. English like, novels have we done We've done several so of them. Up. We've done yeah. a few of them at this point. Yeah. So, um, take that, Alan. Um, so, uh, back to back to Dickens. Um Anyway, so the Charles Dickens Christmas is very popular. That image of Charles Dickens, the Christmas and the and the the coziness of the snowy things over the Victorian era houses, and you know, it's 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 all lovely. Um, Dickens began writing the story pri- in the year prior to its publication, according to a Christmas Carol's Wikipedia page. He began to write a Christmas Carol in October of 1843, um, and Michael Slater, who Dickens, who was Dickens' biographer, describes the book as being quote written at, at white heat. It was completed in six weeks, with the final pages written in early December. He built much of the work in his head while taking nighttime walks of 15 to 20 miles around London. That's a long walk. Um, How long would that be if the average per- let's say the average person goes like three miles an hour? That's a few so, hours, yeah. That's yeah. like almost all night. Um Slater says that A Christmas Carol was, quote, intended to open its readers' hearts toward those struggling to survive on the lower, lower rungs of the economic ladder and to encourage practical benevolence, but also to warn of the terrible danger to society created by the toleration of widespread ignorance and actual want among the poor. George Crickshank, the 
illustrator who had previously worked with Dickens on Sketches by Boz, which came out in 1836, and Oliver Twist, which was published in 1838, introduced him to the caricaturist John Leach. By 24, the 24th of October, Dickens invited, this is of 1843, Dickens invited Leach to work on A Christmas Carol, and four hand-colored etchings and four black and white wood engravings by the artist accompanied the text. And the digital version that I have off of Amazon has those original uh, drawings in the uh, in the book. Needless to say, A Christmas Carol was widely popular upon its release, selling out immediately and going to 11 printings within its first year. Although Dickens didn't make as much money as he would have liked due to the book's high production costs, as well as other editions that were printed and sold without his permission. Still, the book stayed in print for the rest of Dickens' life, and he would do public readings of it on an annual basis all the way up to his death in 1870. As far as his legacy is concerned, I do want to read part of the Wikipedia page again because it's concise and it does get the point across in a way that I really couldn't. Although the phrase Merry Christmas had been around for many years, the earliest known written use was in a letter in 1534, Dickens' use of the term in A Christmas Carol popularized the term among the Victorian public. The exclamation, bah, humbug, entered the popular use in the English language as a retort to anything sentimental or overly festive. The name Scrooge became used as a designation for a miser and was also included in the Oxford English Dictionary as, as such in 1982. The modern observance of Christmas is largely the result of a mid-Victorian revival of the holiday. The Oxford movement of the 1830s and 1840s had produced a resurgence of the traditional rituals and religious observances associated with Christmastide, and with A Christmas Carol, Dickens captured the zeitgeist of the age, while he reflected and reinforced his vision of Christmas. He advocated a humanitarian focus of the holiday, which influenced several aspects of Christmas that are still celebrated in Western culture, such as family gatherings, seasonal fruit and drink, dancing, games, and a festive generosity of spirit. The historian Ronald Hutton writes that Dickens, quote, linked worship and feasting within a context of social reconciliation. So that is the background on the Christmas story, the novella, as well as its legacy. Now, as far as its effect on the Christmas holiday, I personally do find it really interesting that a lot of our traditions do come from this Victorian era, which I think we were talking a little bit about when we were talking Jane Eyre. We weren't talking Christmas specifically, but there is this... I, there's still a fascination in, in American culture with Victorian England among uh, a lot of people in the same way that um, and people get people get fascinations with other periods in history that are long gone. I, I, and we could have a whole we could probably have a whole discussion of that. I know that if we ever do gone with the wind, we'll have to tackle the topic of this this quote nostalgia or love people have for the antebellum South. Um, but it's one of my favorites. Yeah. So, we'll, but you know that that's. <laughs> That is a bridge to cross some other time. The other legacy of A Christmas Carol is in its many, many, many adaptations in other media. Um, and I'm going to name some notable ones that were on stage, on screen, both big and small, and in print. Um, there were a number of radio productions, audio productions done over the years. I, I didn't include those, but it's uh, you can find all radio shows and radio productions of those uh, as well. But on stage, on stage. Uh, 1988, Patrick Stewart's one-man reading and acting of the story made its first appearance in London and later on Broadway. On stage, he would use a table, chair, stool, lectern, and a book with an oversized print cover to enact the entire story. 
the production has been revived in London and New York several times, and it's also been released on CD. I'm sure you can download it on iTunes as well. There was a Broadway musical adaptation in 1994 with music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Lynn Ahrens. Uh, it ran at the uh, the theater at Madison Square Garden. It was uh, in 1984, starring as Scrooge was Walter Charles, and it has also starred over the years uh, Terrence Mann, Tony Randall, Hal Linden, Roddy McDowell, Roger Daltrey, Tony Roberts, Frank Langella, Tim Curry... F. Murray Abraham and Jim Dale, and there was a television version of the musical uh, broadcast starring Kelsey Grammer. Movies and film. Uh, this is and television as well. So movies and films. Scrooge or Marley's Ghost in 1901 was a short British film, and that is the earliest surviving screen adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Uh, the first feature-length adaptation came out in 1916. It was called The Right to be Happy. It was directed by and starred Rupert Julian as Scrooge. Uh, in 1951, the movie Scrooge in the UK, but retitled as A Christmas Carol in the US, starring Alastair Sim as Scrooge and Mervyn Johns and Hermione Baddeley as the Cratchits. According to critic A.O. Scott of the New York Times, this is one of the best ever made film versions of the Dickens classic. Scrooge, a 1970 musical film starring Albert Finney as Scrooge and Alec Guinness as Marley's Ghost. Mickey's Christmas Carol from 1983, an animated featurette film featuring various Walt Disney characters. Scrooge McDuck, obviously, played Ebenezer Scrooge with um, Donald Duck as his nephew Fred. Mickey Mouse was Bob Cratchit. Goofy was Jacob Marley. The Ghosts of Past, Present, and Yet to Come were Jiminy Cricket was the Ghost of Christmas past. The ghost of Christmas present, I was believe, was the giant from the Jack and the Beanstalk short. And Pete, you know, the dog Pete that smoked the cigar, was um, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Goofy's and, nemesis. Yeah, and then the uh, the two the two guys who were collecting charity, you know, at the beginning of the of the novella were played by the two characters from um, the Great Mouse Detective. Um. Scrooged in 1989 was a comedy adaptation starring Bill Murray and A Christmas Carol came out in 2009. This was directed by Robert Zemeckis. It was done in that really, really creepy performance capture computer animation thing that he used for um, the that creepy version of the Polar Express and that awful, 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 awful version of Beowulf that he did. This was Jim Carrey as Ebenezer Scrooge and the Three Ghosts. This was from... Walt Disney. Um, this adaptation of the story includes that version of Beowulf sucks. I'm sorry. Um, I hope you didn't even get tongue-tied saying it. You practiced that, sir. No, I didn't. Uh, this adaptation of the story includes such scenes as Scrooge being chased through London by a haunted carriage. Yeah, because we needed that. And Scrooge being dropped into his own grave by the spirit of yet to come. That sort of happens in a lot of the different adaptations. Um in, in the in the Disney version, in um the the McDuck Scrooge McDuck version, he falls into the grave and when he when he quote lands, it's when he wakes up and he's in bed. T V adaptations an early live television adaptation was broadcast by the Dumont Network. Um, Dumont, if you're, if, uh, if those of you who aren't familiar with um, television history, back in the 1950s, 1940s, and 1950s, there were four networks. Uh, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and Dumont. Dumont 
went out of business um, sometime in the 50s and became syndicated channels that were eventually absorbed into the Fox network. And um, a lot of Dumont's footage is lost because they would tape over things back then to save tape, not thinking that any of this would want to be preserved. But um, So this was a fourth network back in the uh, 40s and, and early 50s. And they ran a live television adaptation in uh, on the 20th of December, 1944. Um, BBC, the BBC aired a ballet version called Crisp... Uh, Christmas Night with music by Ralph Vaughn Williams on just Christmas 1946. Christmas 1947, there was another live Dumont television version starring John Carradine as Scrooge and featured David Carradine and Eva Marine Saint. Uh, she That was her TV debut. Um, in 1954, A Christmas Carol, a film musical a- television adaptation starring Frederick March as Scrooge and Basil Rathbone as Marley, was shown on the television anthology Shower of Stars. The adaptation and lyrics were by Maxwell An- Anderson, and the music was by Bernard Herman, which, by the way, serious pedigree on the music there. Bernard Herman was responsible for a number of famous movie scores, including the theme to Psycho. First version in color... Um, it's actually only survived in black and white, though a color version may yet turn up. Uh, this was Frederick March won an Emmy for his performance. Jumping to 1962, an animated television special called Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Uh, Mr. Magoo was voiced by Jim Backus, whose most famous role is as Thurston Howell III, one of the castaways on Gilligan's Island. Bugs Bunny's Christmas Carol came out in 1979. Scrooge was in that one was played by Yosemite Sam. In 1984, George C. Scott starred as Ebenezer Scrooge in a, in a television movie version of Christmas Carol. David Warner and Susanna York were the Cratchits. Hey, it all comes back to Superman. Um, Edward, oh, it does. Edward Woodward was the ghost of Christmas present. George C. Scott was nominated for an Emmy. Clive Donner, who had been the film editor for the 1951 film Scrooge, directed it. And uh, the novelist and essayist Louis Bayard described the adaptation as, quote, the definitive version of a beloved literary classic. Praising its fidelity to a Dickens original story, the strength of the supporting cast, and especially Scott's performance as Scrooge. In 1994, we get a Flintstones Christmas Carol. Um, there is a 1999 television movie um, starring Patrick Stewart as Ebenezer Scrooge, which is basically the adaptation of the stage play version that he was doing, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment. Uh, the t- 2004 Kelsey Grammer Christmas Carol the musical that was mentioned. Uh, one thing about unique about the Kelsey Grammer version, that musical version I mentioned, is that Scrooge meets all three spirits in human form, both before and after his nighttime encounters, kind of in the same way that Dorothy sees the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow, the Wicked Witch of the West, and the Wizard of Oz in Kansas before the color part of the Wizard of Oz. A Sesame Street Christmas Carol was the direct DVD featuring none other than Oscar the Grouch in his Scrooge role. And then we get to two of my wife's favorite. First is Ebby, E-B-B-I-E, 1995, a TV movie that brought the first portrayal of Scrooge played by a woman. Susan Lucci, star of All My Children, was Elizabeth Ebby Scrooge, the owner of a huge department store, and some of her own employees were doubling as the three Christmas spirits. 
And anyone who watched VH1 in the late night, in the early 2000s, knows this one. A Diva's Christmas Carol, starring Vanessa Williams as Scrooge, as Ebony Scrooge, one-third of the late 80s pop trio called Desire, and now an egotistical, arrogant, grouchy solo diva. So she plays Diana Ross. Um, and then there were many, 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 many adaptations on TV shows, like episodes of TV shows that basically took this story. Uh, it's been done on Sanford and Son, Doctor Who, Family Ties, Martin, Thomas and Friends, Northern Exposure, The Six Million Dollar Man, WKRP in Cincinnati, The Real Ghostbusters, The Odd Couple, and The Simpsons. And before I finish, I do want to bring up our one of our favorite mediums, which is comics. This has been done several times. Classic Illustrated number 53 in 1948 adapted this. The script was by George Lipscomb and drawn by Henry Kiefer. It was also adapted by Marvel Comics in their Marvel Classics Comics series number 36. Uh, The credit was the many hands did the artwork, but uh, the script was by uh, Batman writer Doug Mensch. Uh, Sean Michael Wilson and Mike Collins did The Christmas Carol, a graphic novel, which was also chosen as one of the top ten graphic novels of the year by the Sunday Times. Um, an adaptation by Alex Burroughs was included in the Christmas Classics Graphic Classics, Volume 19 in 2010. Um, most recently... Uh, there was an effort to finish an unpublished Harvey Kurtzman version, which uh, was available on Comixology, and I don't know if you read it, called Marley's Ghost, which was uh, which was originally set to be adapted by Harvey Kurtzman, but he did not finish it, and it was recently finished. It's really, really good, and I think Comixology had it on sale for a while. Yep. And then you have Batman Noel, which was written and drawn by Lee... Bermejo. Bermejo. Okay, thank you. And You're welcome. Have you read that? No, I have not. Okay. My personal favorite comic book adaptation of A Christmas Carol, Saving the Best for Last from 1966, Teen Titans number 13. A Teen Titans swinging Christmas Carol, drawn by Nick Carty. So the artwork is gorgeous. And of course, shout out to Rob and the Shag. Um... <laughs> Written physically painful for you by zany Bob Haney. So um, those are your comics adaptations, and like I said, there's been a. This is only like a few and a lot, but it's been a few. Um, and here's here's where I just wanted to to talk about like our, I, I talked about how much I love the I, I love the Teen Titans swinging Christmas Carol. It's so just goofy fun, um, and 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 captures the spirit of that era of Teen Titans for me. Uh, but that's not my favorite Christmas Carol adaptation. But before I get to mine, what is yours? I know what I, yours is. I, I deliberately left it off the list. <laughs> my Muppet one? Yeah, I, I did that on purpose because I knew it was yours. It is. Yeah, I do actually really love the Muppet uh, version. I feel like that was, it might have been the first one that I had seen. I know I've seen the Patrick Stewart version, mm-hmm. the the Mickey Mouse version. I saw Scrooged with Bill Murray. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, but I, I think consistently it's fun to go back to the Muppet one because you actually have Gonzo acting as Dickens, which I think is appropriate since Dickens does peep his little head in, peek his little head in yeah. <laughs> in the actual novel. And, uh, yeah, and, and it's fun to see the Muppets and, um, new Muppets too with the, with the different spirits. So that's, that's certainly, I think, my favorite adaptation. But I will recommend the, 
Harvey, what's his name? Harvey Kurtzman. Yes, because I also got that. I I I saw it. I get emails from Comixology, and I saw this, and I thought, oh, how, how appropriate. And I emailed it to Tom, and it was on sale, so I ended up getting it as well. And a very beautiful adaptation. Yeah. I think the art was was amazing, and it was also interesting. At the back, you get this history mm-hmm. of how he wanted, you know, from the very beginning, how he was trying to push for it and really use as much of the original source material as possible, which I really appreciate. And even reading it shortly after reading the the novella, it was interesting to see how closely it stays, you know, really using Dickens words to, to fill the page. So I recommend that. Yeah, it's really, really faithful. And I don't know if it's, uh, by the time this comes out, it may be at full price on Comixology. It was on sale for quite a while, but it's readily available. It's only available digitally, as far as I know. I don't think there's a print version mm-hmm. out there, but um, it, it is really worth reading. It was I, I really, really enjoyed it, especially, like you said, after having read this, uh, the original text. So, um, yeah, I've seen... I've seen him up at Christmas Carol. I've seen Scrooge. Um, I do like him up at Christmas Carol. Scrooge was something that I liked when I saw it, and then I don't think it holds up as well as it could uh, in 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 few other watchings. Even though it's still a good movie, um, I've seen bits and pieces of other adaptations, like the George C. Scott version, because I know my mom has it on D on not even a DVD. I think my mom has like a VHS. Um, and I think I've seen bits and pieces of the Alistair Sim version. Cause those are the ones that get aired on um, television quite a bit. And I have seen quite a bit of a diva's Christmas Carol. Never seen Ebby though. My personal sentimental favorite kind of goes back and that I keep coming back to. And I think it's for similar reasons as yours. It's just that this came out, um, well, before you were born. Uh, and that's <laughs> Mickey's Christmas Carol, because I saw Mickey's Christmas Carol, in theaters, because it was a short, um, it was done as a short that they aired, they showed before, for me, it was a re-release of The Rescuers in about 83, I think is when I saw it, but I do remember it, and um, I have it on the DVD here, and I've always loved it, I've always absolutely loved it, and when I think of A Christmas Carol, I always think of Mickey Mouse's Bob Cratchit, and... Um, and Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck is Ebenezer Scrooge, and Goofy is Marley, and Goofy like basically falling down the stairs when he leaves Scrooge's apartment. And I want to say they play this the, the Goofy the Goofy the Goofy noise, you know that you know whatever that is. I can't do it. The sport Goofy noise, um, and uh, and the. Yeah, the the scene with Pete as the um, cigar chomping goes to Christmas future, and he's like. I remember it vividly because, you know, McDuck is, um, you know, whose grave is this? You know, the scene at the end where he's like, you know, he sees the grave and he's like, well, whose grave is this, this poor man's? And, and Pete lights his match and you see Ebenezer Scrooge on it and then he says, well, I believe it's yours, Ebenezer. And he, you know, and basically Scrooge falls into the grave and, and then it's just, uh, it's just really, uh, Really, really well done, you know, with Minnie as, as Mrs. Cratchit, and they have, like, little Mickeys running around. So um, it's always been a sentimental favorite of mine. And the music was pretty good, too. You do have a heart. All right. <laughs> so let's go ahead and uh, get into the plot synopsis, which, oh. believe it or not, I don't think, like, 
most of us know the story. Most people know the story, or they know some the gist of the story. But we're going to go ahead and go through an actual, like, you know, our usually lengthy synopsis of this, although it's not as long as some of the other things we have, because it is a novella, and it, that means it's significantly shorter than most novels of the time, or most novels now. But the book is divided into five parts that Dickens refers to as staves. Each of the first four staves corresponds to the visit by one of each of the four ghosts in the story. And the fifth is the aftermath and resolution of the story. And while I realize it's incredibly well-known, like I said, I'm going to give you guys a decent rundown. Our main character, of course, is Ebenezer Scrooge, who runs what's called a counting house, which is basically, well, it's a loan office. And I can imagine if this was taking place in the present-day United States, he could be working at a financial institution, an investment house, a bank, or if you really want to get down and seedy, you can picture him working at, like, Cashpoint or Fast Loans or, you know, one of those places where you take out a loan and get charged at, like, 99% interest, you know, those payday loan places. Um, true to his occupation, Scrooge is a penny-pinching miser, and he's also a grouch beyond grouch, and he expresses that through his oft-quoted catchphrase, Bah, humbug. On the day of Christmas Eve, Scrooge bah humbugs his way through a conversation with his nephew Fred, who invites him to Christmas dinner, as well as two men who are seeking donations for charity. He only allows his overworked and underpaid employee, Bob Cratchit, to take Christmas Day off because that's the societal norm, and then he heads home for the night. That night, he is visited by the ghost of Jacob Marley, his former partner in business, who is walking through the afterlife carrying chains and money boxes, which he tells Scrooge were of his own making, and he warns Scrooge that he do- if he doesn't change the way he lives his life and the way he treats people, he will suffer the same fate upon his death. Marley also tells Scrooge that over the course of three nights, he will be visited by three spirits. The first of those spirits is the ghost of Christmas past, who is an angelic figure wearing a white robe and with a blazing light upon his head. He shows Scrooge memories and moments from his childhood, including his being alone at a boarding school over the holidays, his sister Fran coming to see him to tell him that his estranged father wants him to come back home, and good times at Fezziwig's, his old hangout. He also, shows, he also shows Scrooge memories of his relationship with his former fiancée, Belle, whom he broke up with when his relationship with her got in the way of him making money. Scrooge wishes to see no more, and the spirit replies, These are the shadows of things that have been, that they are what they are, do not blame me. Scrooge then snuffs his light out and is returned back to his bed, the time having not changed. Still the same night, despite Marley's warning, Scrooge meets the ghost of Christmas present, who appears like a, as a jolly giant who is celebrating, and takes Scrooge around to various Christmas celebrations that are going on in London. However, he also shows the poverty that is also pervasive throughout London, including the Cratchit household where the family has a meal that is very sparse, and we see Bob and his wife several children, including the sickly tiny Tim. Scrooge begins to show some sympathy for the family, especially Tim, and asks the spirit if Tiny Tim is going to live. The ghost replies, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. And then, using Scrooge's past heartless comments to two charity workers against him, states, What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. The spirit then shows Scrooge two emaciated children, naming the boy Ignorance and the girl Want. He then says, Beware them both in all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that 
written, which is doom unless the writing will be erased. Scrooge wonders if the children have any refuge or resource, and the spirit throws his own words back at him again, saying, Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? At this point, the night is nearly over, and the ghost of Christmas present has aged significantly. He then disappears, for he only appears on one night of the year, and Scrooge then sees the ghost of Christmas yet to come, which has a Grim Reaper-esque appearance, completely covered in a black hood. He does not speak, and instead leads Scrooge along as Scrooge asks rhetorical questions and makes statements about what he is observing. The ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge the aftermaths of two deaths. One of these is Tiny Tim, and Scrooge sees the Cratchits mourning their son. The other is unknown, but we know that he was considered a joke by many of the people around him. People whom Scrooge himself has known for years and years, and has done business with for years and years. Eventually they come to a graveyard with that mysterious man's grave, and having become frustrated and scared, Scrooge asks what this person's name is, and finds that on the headstone is written, Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge vows to turn over a new leaf and lead a much different life, saying, Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. He clutches the spirit's hand and then wakes up to see what he is clutching is his bedpost and has not missed Christmas. He spends the entire day with Fred and his family, anonymously sending a turkey to Bob Cratchit and his family, and the next day he gives Cratchit a raise. Additionally, Scrooge becomes another father to Tiny Tim and lives out his days being generous and embodying the spirit of Christmas. All right, so that is A Christmas Carol. And the question that we always ask each other after we have synopsized our plot is, did you like this book? Who am I? Who am I? Uh, I finished it. I'm just kidding. Um, if you remember, that's what Tom told me. During uh, Jane Eyre, uh, let's see. Did I? I did like it. I th- I read it in one day, which is possible because it is a novella. Mm-hmm. But it it also I think reads really well. Perhaps in one sitting, I think it might have taken me two sittings because I had things to do. But it's nice because obviously you want to almost be in the moment, like Ebenezer is, and because all these things are happening sort of within the same hour. Yeah. <clears throat> And so it's nice to actually sit down and read it. But no, I liked it. And and as I said, since this is the first time I ever read it, it was nice to see what the true origin was, you know, instead of my my Muppets adaptation. So, yes, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, and it's nice to – it is. You can read it in one sitting. Or what is also nice is that the way he separates the chapters, the staves, as he calls them, you can read one of those, put it away, and then come back to the next one. And you – haven't missed, you know, like, you know, it's it separated very, very nicely. So I think I read it over a course of a couple of nights because, you know, I, you know, as you get busy and stuff, um, right. I feel the same way. And I feel like it was nice that it wasn't disappointing in terms of this is the source material for a number of stories um, and a number of adaptations. And sometimes you get that where, like, you hear about a really good story or a story that a lot of people love and you finally go back and you read the source material for that story, whether it's a film or whatever. And 
there are some cases where you're not as blown away by the by the novel or whatever as you are by the actual production or movie or whatever that you saw. And this in this case, that's not the case. Um, I would put it. I I don't think I don't know if it's like better than the movie or whatever. I think it's just it's just as good. It's it's worth reading in tandem with ever whatever version of the of the story that you're you're going to watch. So. But oh, I'm glad you liked it because I, I this is this is the um, out of all the things I've read by Charles Dickens and I've read like I think like two or three of his books. Um, this is my favorite. I'm not that much of a fan of Charles Dickens anyway. I the- know, I know you aren't. That's why I was astounded that you liked this. And this is a really, really well written book. And the first question is like, what makes this enjoyable? Well, I'd, I'd like you to answer that first because you toned down my question. I'm pretty sure this was my question, and the way I phrased it was to the hypocrite Thomas. <laughs> Why do you like this one and not any of the other ones? So I'd like you to answer this first. Um, basically because it's concise. Um, <laughs> Dickens. Oh, what? Dickens. Then you sound like one of my students. I liked it because it was short. No, 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 no. There's a difference between short and concise. Dickens takes, he describes things vividly, but he has what is essentially has to be a very, very uh, a tight plot. He he cannot, the way this plot is structured, it does not allow the characters, uh, doesn't allow for a lot of uh, conventions of the day, even though some of them are there, like the supernatural and things like that. But also there's not a lot of plot contrivance going on where all of a sudden there's some like long lost relative or some benefactor that was like, quietly doing things and all of a sudden they're revealed um you know things like that uh which happens in at least one of his other novels and he also doesn't have to oh he doesn't overdo it in 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 these long passages of description and things like that and what's nice is that the plot is so simple and so straightforward that it lets the characters drive the story instead of instead of the other way around so they don't have to like you know you've got you know that this basically going to be like once once we have the complication of the story if we're looking at our good friend Freitag's pyramid um or or some people call it the witch's hat the plot diagram the complication the inciting incident whatever you want to call it the thing that comes between your exposition and your rising action is marley is marley showing up because prior to that scrooge was just humbugging his way through life and marley tells him now we we had a discussion over the fact that like marley does say it's gonna be three nights and then the whole thing occurs on one night so either dickens didn't catch his own internal continuity error or we can just no prize it saying that like time works differently and you know like Mm. it's all perception and whatever. Most adaptations actually don't say three. They just basically say tonight you'll be visited by three spirits. Mm-hmm. In the long short, honestly, whatever error that is, it really doesn't really affect the plot. It's basically Marley tells him three ghosts are going to come see you. And then that's what we're expecting. So we don't need to see anything else beyond present, past, and future. And it's mm-hmm. that's what I like about it. It is such a... It's, it, he constrains himself to this structure and he has to keep it tight and he shines doing that. And I appreciate that when a writer can do that. 
I think part of it is it seemed like because he wrote it so quickly that there really was no margin for going off on little rabbit trails like he sometimes does maybe not Mm -hmm. as much as um, Victor Hugo, <laughs> and, <laughs> I love, I read, and I love. I haven't read. And I love Les Les yeah. <laughs> I know that's that's uh, on your list, and that's one of those things we'll do once I read it. But reading Hunchback, which is half the size of Les Mis, he went on about like architecture versus writing, and how one was destroying the other for a long mm-hmm. time. And I thought, my goodness, oh. you you certainly have some freedom to do that. So oh, Les, I think Les Mis is going to give you a whole recap of the Napoleonic Wars. Of, Just yeah, be ready can't wait for that. For that. <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, because he wrote so quickly and it was either because I, I, maybe he just had these thoughts and they poured out very, you know, nicely or he wanted to, to finish something quickly. I, I can't really say, but I agree that it is uh, concise and I think it's detailed, but not uber detailed. Like sometimes... He is. Uh, I really like David Copperfield, but you know that's just you have to be prepared when you're reading any Dickens. I feel like to there's going to be details. You'll go off and talk about another character that's like tertiary, but will relate to the whole story later on. But you don't know what is going to relate. So uh, yeah, I liked I liked this. I think also the fact that it's Christmas themed. I mean, who doesn't mm-hmm. like that? And that there's redemption in the end. I, I like dynamic characters. If Scrooge was just Scrooge at the end, I think I'd be pretty PO'd, quite yeah. honestly. You know, if he was just, he didn't change at all. Um, and, and it's it's fanciful as well. I think a lot of the other Dickens novels are pretty, they're hard sometimes to get through because they're not very, which is why the Dickensian is how I was relating it. They're not very happy. Uh, there are some occasionally they'll end up with happy endings, but like, you know, you've got this orphan, um, great expectations. That's a pretty messed up relationship that's going on in there. You tell yeah. two cities. There's some hard stuff at the end. It's very beautiful, but still, you know, someone's dying and sacrificing for for somebody else. So it's not very happy. But here, I think it's more fanciful. And yes, there are some more serious things and some uh, some moments where you're like, oh, Scrooge, what were you thinking here, Ebenezer? But otherwise, yeah, I think it's just wonderful things come together in a, in a small no- novella, and it works really well. Uh, and I think he. Um he does go very, very dark, and yet, and I'm just thinking about it more. I just, I misused the word Dickensian, but I was just trying to come up with that idea of a Charles Dickens Christmas, which there's a certain image associated with that, which is its own like little. Let's just scrape away all the bad stuff and look at the pretty mm. stuff. And that, that's that's where I was going with. But yes, Dickensian is definitely the, you know. God, how bleak can this get? Um, and this gets bleak. I mean, this is the thing. Like, he allows Scrooge to go very, very dark. But he has to have him go there so that when the redemption comes, the redemption makes complete sense. And I felt that he does it in a way that is not saccharine, in a way that my my least favorite Christmas movie is like the favorite Christmas movie of many, many people, which is It's a Wonderful Life. I cannot stand that movie. And I find that movie cloying. 
but that I can't stand. But this I just feel like works on on a level that's that's much different because it's just I don't I, I yeah it, 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 I'm trying to add to what you said because you said it so well um, that Dickens doesn't Dickens doesn't pull his punches. Mm-mm. Um, but at the same time, he knows it has to 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 be in this Christmas spirit. He knows it has to end with a very very nice note, and um, you know he he kind of you know he he falls. I don't want to say falls in love because it's a terrible way to phrase it, but he 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 gets an affection for Tiny Tim, and there's a redemption in that because at the end he it says he becomes like a second father, like he really cares of genuinely cares about this kid, even at his bleakest moments, like when he's looking into the yet to come part, he worries in the present he worries about Tiny Tim, like genuinely worries about him, and that's one of the things that. Um, you know, he sees a lot of the humanity in people that he never really saw before. And I think that's something that is really, really worth celebrating in terms of, you know, this character and the story, um, which gets us into the co- a couple of common uh, questions that we had, um, which are its function. Now, there's uh, I, I, I hopefully am not misusing the word parable here because I believe a parable is a story somebody tells in order to teach a lesson um, that does not involve animals because that's a fable so my question the question I had was uh, how does this story function as a parable is it meant did Dickens write it as a way to teach us something and correct me if I'm misusing the, the word parable in terms of the literary, literary uh, genre because I believe it's I'm semi-correct here yeah, well, I mean, all, all I can think of is obviously biblical parables, Yeah, yeah, right? that's so, my, like, you know, the good Samaritan is, is the first thing sure. I think of when I think of a parable. Yeah, yep, or the prodigal son. Mm-hmm, or, that's yeah. the other one, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, each thing is, I guess it's this idea that it's a story in itself, mm-hmm. but it has a deeper meaning, and, and each thing sort of represents itself. Um, I, I think it could be. I, I think... Um, I almost feel like it's a uh, not a you know how fairy tales have like the moral of this story is mm-hmm. that's yeah, fairy tales and fable have that moral because I yeah I wonder if it's closer to that because I don't know if I could potentially see like meaning in everything but I see like the the end the end point yeah. I think is obviously Scrooge's redemption and that to, to look at him as an example and to not be that guy and to be giving, but not just giving on Christmas, but to be giving, I think, your whole life mm-hmm. or, yeah, all the rest you know, of your afterlife is going to be <laughs> pretty yeah. bad, potentially. I, I would say that that is... That's the the big thing there. Yeah, I think there might also be like within the story there are lessons, there are small lessons to be learned about what l- one's love of personal gain can do sure. to you can do to your relationships and how dangerous it can be and how ultimately unfulfilling that life is. Mm. You know, the idea that somebody who not necessarily screws people over. Because there's no real evidence that he did that to get where he was. And that is not that there's no, I don't really see any evidence that he did anything underhanded to make his money. He was just cold to, you know, he, his, he lost his fiance. He lost most of his friends. 
and things. So it's not like he did anything criminal, meaning that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. You know, like he didn't backstab anybody or do anything criminal. Yeah. Like everything was on the up and up. But even then, his love of money, his avarice is um, is ultimately unfulfilling. And, and it's filling a void that he had. And we're going we're gonna to get to that in a little bit. But um, the other thing that I think is definitely in there is a – and this is why my uh, 12th grade economics teacher, Mr. Bennett, shout out um, – used it in in our class it's a piece of sociological and economic criticism and commentary and then uh, you i think this was a sub question you had how is wealth treated in the story is is it a sign of moral corruption or greed or does dickens offer a more complex assessment so what is your what is your take on um on that is how does the story function as a economic criticism or sociological criticism (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, it really seems like it's it's about the haves and the have-nots. I, it's really, you know, there aren't really many in-betweeners, I would say. It, you've got the very rich, and unfortunately, the very rich don't seem, well, I should be careful how I say that, because um, Fezziwig seemed like a very joyous man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it seems like too much wealth could potentially corrupt. However, I also think it's... Um, People who are poor and have the opportunity to get wealth might be like very focused on that. And this is interesting because I just read a book that I don't recommend, but um, an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. Uh-huh. And the main character, in, uh, the main character in there is very focused on raising his his social status, and unfortunately, it's led him to do bad things. So it seems like when you're at the bottom and trying to make your way up top, uh, it doesn't matter the people that you sort of shove out of the way, uh, and you, your focus is that. So I don't know if it's that intrinsically wealth is bad, but it might be if that's your end goal, then I think it's bad. Uh, so I think it goes to sort of looking at the good life and what is the good life made up of and what is going to bring you happiness. And I think, unfortunately, for Scrooge, he felt like, you know, once I get to this place, then I'll be happy. Um, but he never seems to reach that, and then he starts to push people away. I, I don't know if the money is intrinsically bad because if I look at Fezziwig, who seemed pretty stable, I don't know if he was wealthy, um, but it seemed like he had a pretty stable situation. He was very joyous. He was very giving at that uh, Christmas party. It seemed like the people that he had around him were very happy as well. And so, yeah. But then the poor are generally just downtrodden. (laughs) Um, At least the people presented that are in these different uh, sort of asylums or institutions, they seem to not have a happy time. Um, I, I feel like I'm giving a non-answer here because if you look at it, it's, it shows like different angles of this. And I think it's really the person and what they're making of their situation because Bob Cratchit certainly is not in a stable economic or financial situation. No. But he and his family are pretty happy because they love each other. And so I think he has the best view of what the good life is because he's surrounding himself with the people that he loves. Um, so, you know, I think Dickens is sort of looking at the has and the have-nots and also looking at different angles of that and how people are approaching it and that 
I don't know. I mean, I would love for you to disagree with me, but I don't know if that the wealth is the bad thing, but it's how people acquired it and how they act when they have it. And then the poor people, you know, what are they doing? You've got the downtrodden, but then you have the people who are poor and they're content with what they have, which is a very biblical concept. Um, and then, you know, with Bob Cratchit there. So I think there's a lot going on here that, that there might not be like a simplistic answer. Yeah. At least I can't find no, one. And, and that's what, that's what I really like about this and that's why I asked the question because I have an answer very similar to yours um, it's interesting you brought up uh, you were describing an American tragedy because I've heard of it I've never mm-hmm. read it and I, I didn't know what it was about and you were explaining what it was about and about how this person did what he could underhand and you know or doing what you can even however however underhanded it is to get rich to get into that upper echelon of society and that reminds me of another one of my favorite novels which is the great Gatsby ah. and how Jay Gatsby like got his money as we find out as the novel goes on sure. through not so, you know, he, you know, he's kind of, he's not a fraud. He's got money, but it's, you know, he's, he's kind of slimy if you think of his yeah. business dealings. So, and, and what this is, and he's not content with his wealth either. No, no. Cause he doesn't have the easy. Um, right. And who knows if he would be con- which is this is for another time, but who yeah. knows if he would even be content then yeah. with Daisy. Yeah, exactly. And and this is this sort of um it's like yeah, it's like well I, I wrote down I had a couple of my notes here. I wrote well wealth plus philanthropy. And I was looking I was actually it busted out my 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 whipped a crap copy of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Um, that I got back in 1996 because I uh, from college, and I was looking up the Aristotelian virtue of generosity and the idea that you know a person who's wealthy spends his money and is generous, you know, because he it's it, 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 in a way that is pleasurable. Like he likes to give money, and and there is that idea that a lot of the people who are who are wealthy give as well as they take sure and so you can use that term wealthy in terms of financially but also what you were talking about just wealth in say spirit or wealth in say attitude and, and things and kind of almost like following the golden rule you know do unto others etc and and I, you you see there's a certain wealth among the cratchit in term family in terms of like how they love each other and there's a there's a wholeness to that that Scrooge doesn't have even though Scrooge has never going to want for anything for the rest of his life because he's got all this money but all he's ever wanted to do is accumulate money and it it, it makes me think he makes me think of um, have you ever seen the documentary The Queen of Versailles no it's about this um, it's it's about this woman who uh, she's the, the the wife of like this um wealthy real estate investor who's like head of like was head of like one of the biggest timeshare companies in the you know in the country or whatever and she's just and they were building this huge house that was basically modeled after Versailles in like Florida mm-hmm. and all she does she grew up poor but eventually you know got rich and married rich and all she does is accumulate and it's this great documentary showing like how somebody can have all this money and they're just obviously just not happy. Like they're they're accumulating and buying and buying and buying and buying because something, 
something needs to fill something is missing um now she was in in that in that movie she's fulfilling it through you know buying things for people or whatever and um other people fill it with drugs um but in this case with with scrooge it's just like i'm going to hold on to my money and i'm going to be like obstinate about the fact because all of these things in my past happened and I'm not going to acknowledge it's my own fault for, you know, choosing money over a bell. But getting back to this and getting back to what you were talking about, yeah, there's this have, have nots. There's this critical, this criticism of like this hyper capitalism that had been plaguing society. The idea that the people who were getting richer, rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And there was sort of a middle class at the time, but like this gap between them was so vast. And he was pointing that out. And it is interesting that five years later, Karl Marx publishes the Communist Manifesto, um, mm-hmm. and then later down the line, he and Frederick Engels would um, would also publish Das Kapital, which is the the, the theory of you know of, of his basic communist theory, and that was an economic theory that that was dependent on um, a revolution from the working class to overthrow the bourgeoisie, and you know, the idea that the have and the have not conflict gets so great it hits a critical mass where the have nots finally get fed up. And take over, and um, so I don't think he sees wealth as a sign of more cor- corruption, but he sees this. He does acknowledge the avarice behind a lot of, of people who who don't acknowledge that their actions and their desire to accumulate affect other people around them. Um, and that's another thing. What I like about this is how when Dickens is describing all these scenes throughout England, throughout London. He does not sugarcoat it, and it's not awful. And he's also the other thing is, and this is something that I think is really important. Just because Scrooge changes doesn't mean that London society has changed forever as well. You know, like the problems will still exist, but we've solved one problem for today. Merry Christmas. Hopefully, we can keep solving more. You know. Mm. And I think that's also important to note because it, it, it it's a happy ending, but it's, you know, we know it's still out there. We know what he's criticizing and, and we see it around. And we see, and the other thing is we see that today too. And I think that's one of the things that reasons this novel holds up. Um, Christmas in itself though, because I suppose this could have taken place at any other time of the year. You know, like, but this takes place in and around Christmas. So Christmas has to play some sort of really, really important role in the story. What is the role of Christmas in the story? How is it portrayed in the story? Well, it's it's portrayed as a special time of year Mm -hmm. that people do particular things. And unfortunately... It seems very fleeting, I think, when you when you take a step back and it's it 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 makes me um slightly cynical in the way that people are acting differently that this particular the two days really because Christmas even than Christmas yeah. than they would in any other day, and especially you know when his nephew comes. And the focus is, you know, he's jolly because it's Christmas, of course. And so you wonder, well, you know, you don't visit your uncle on other, you know, you only visit him on Christmas, which is a little sad. And then the people who come to collect money, they're specifically coming 
because it's Christmas. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, the holidays and everything. And so everything is really bright and cheery. But if you take a step back, you're also seeing that, you know, is this just superficial, like this joy and uh, the giving and, you know, all, all the stuff that's going on. Is it only because of this one time of year? So it's, it's beautifully portrayed. But I think there's something also there that, you know, people are acting differently this day than they would other days of the year. Oh, definitely. We definitely see that in the Christmas season as well. I mean, it is probably the biggest season for charities in general, um, especially those that serve uh, the poor, the needy, um, for about lack of a better word. You know, that's where you will have more food drives, more um, financial drives and things by people, you know, by food banks and, uh, you know, feed the hungry, like those sorts of, those sorts of things. And then you have the people who are like, well, I gave it the office, which is like the, you know, the great lie of our time and the salvation armies out there, et cetera. So I think you're right. I think there, there is an uptick in this and it's almost expected. Like some people, I swear, give to charity around Christmas because that's what they've been told they have to do as opposed to just genuinely wanting to give, you know, like out of the goodness of their hearts. But at the same time, and I think you're right, but at the same time, on the flip side, when you look at Cratchit, the Cratchits, which I think are really, really obviously central to the story, and not just Tiny Tim, but like the whole family, that there's, aside from the generosity that's usually displayed around Christmas, there's this togetherness among family that I think is at the core of this story. In a lot of the versions I've seen of this, it ends with with Scrooge at the Cratchits on Christmas, where they don't have him go to Fred's all day, and, and he doesn't, like, in the Disney version, he shows up at the Cratchits saying, you know, here's another load of my laundry, and one of the little kids gets into the into this huge bag that he's got, and there's presents, and there's a turkey, and it's like, ha-ha, like, I tricked you. Merry Christmas, everybody. In this original text, he just anonymously, he orders, like, the biggest turkey he can get, and he just anonymously sends it to the Bob Cratchit. Which, right. Which I actually think is is more genuine than saying... And then he gives them a raise, because that's, you know, his role as his boss, you know, and eventually would make sure. a partner. But... I think there's something. I think there's honestly something very genuine in the fact that he makes this anonymous donation, because he it shows that he's doing it out of kindness and not to show off his own to make himself feel better. Like his, you know, like so that Bob Cratch would be like, "Oh, thank you, Mister Scrooge, or whatever." And he spends the day with his family. So I think family is like really, really important to this. Beyond like, hey, don't be a cheapskate. <laughs> Sure. Jerkhead, you know. Um, so I think that time of celebration and togetherness among family that we we see at Christmas, and I'll use the term family loosely, and say that it can be any family, anybody you consider family. So if it's a core group of friends that you consider more family than your actual family, and you would rather sit and have Christmas dinner, you know. With Phoebes and Monica and Joey, <laughs> rather than rather than your sisters or whatever, you know, that can be a family. So it doesn't have to necessarily have to be sort of a traditional definition of family because Scrooge does find a second family in the Cratchits at the end. So I think that's that. That was really important to me. Now, 
As far as family or friends in the story, we have Jacob Marley. And the book begins with the sentence, Marley is dead. Marley was dead. That's the first sentence of the book. Um, which is very important to Scrooge's character because if it wasn't, um, you know, if it wasn't, we wouldn't have, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't have the whole thing with Marley showing up. Um, how important is he? And, and were they actually friends? Yeah. I wondered this throughout the novel. Because he, he calls him friend, and it's said that they're friends, but I just wondered if Ebenezer Scrooge was able to have any friends. And I guess their bond is money, so maybe they're just like, there's something tying them together, and maybe Cratchit was really the only person uh, that best understood him. So maybe, maybe they were friends. I just didn't know if in his heart uh, Ebenezer had that ability to have a friends. There's yeah, Marley was dead to begin with. Yeah. Um, is he important? Is that what the question yeah, is? How important, how important is, he? is he? Yeah, well, pretty important, I guess, since he's the sort of the mediary between Ebenezer and the rest of the spirits. Like, he's the one who actually introduces everything because I think without him it would be very startling but more startling than it already is to have three spirits uh, appear to you and have no sort of context for why these spirits are you know coming and um, it's interesting how it starts because you, you don't really expect it you expect to start with Ebenezer mm-hmm um, but it all comes back to Marley because he's living in Marley's place. The door knocker t- changes and has Marley's face on it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like he's really important. As to why we start out with Marley, I'm not really sure, but perhaps it is because we're leading into, you know, we want to introduce this guy. Because if we waited until later and then Dickens gave this exposition of, well, Marley was his deceased business partner, it wouldn't really work out as much. Yeah, and there's a paragraph in there on, um, it's probably like the second page of the story in my, in my edition. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood years afterward, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. And I think it's a really key paragraph in the relationship of Scrooge and Marley, because Marley is, and this is the warning he gives him, is that Marley and Scrooge are so partners that they're interchangeable. They may not actually yeah. be friends. So Marley's the cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. And and there's not and and I know this doesn't sound subtle at all, but there's not a lot of subtlety to this book. Um, but Marley's this cautionary tale and Marley was just as greedy and just as Scrooge as Scrooge. So he was, they were very much companions in that regard, but I don't think they ever would be friends the way you and I um, have friends. Mm-hmm. Right. So Cratchit is an employee. <laughs> you know, Cratchit's not a partner. Um, Cratchit's very subservient. Now, the idea that they used to confuse the two means that upon Scrooge's death, he is awaiting for him is the same fate that befell Jacob Marley. And that's why Marley comes to warn him. 
So I think Marley is incredibly important to the story because, believe it or not, Marley is, not literally because there's a different person persona for this, but Marley is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Because Marley is what is yet to come. Mm-hmm. Um, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is showing things for, showing things to Scrooge that are otherwise to you know to to put a finer point on it. But he goes into uh, this whole um, description of Marley, and then he goes right, and then he he really seamlessly goes into Scrooge in terms of his description at the very very beginning of the book to say that like you know. It gives us enough exposition on the other, but now here's Scrooge, and we don't see much difference in character because there is none. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we get all this. We get a little comedy. We get a little horror, but we get these these ghosts, spirits, spirit of Christmas, past, present, and yet to come, and they have very specific appearances. We have the uh, the the half uh, that the child with the the flames on him, and then by the end of the time for the past, and by the end of his appearance, present is an old man like he's wasted away, and uh, the future is a hooded uh, hooded phantom that doesn't talk. Um, so we'll talk. Let's talk about past and present first, and then we'll talk a little bit about future. Um, what is why is past a half child slash half old man with this burning <laughs> candle? Like, what is what is the meaning of his appearance? Uh, they're all rather strange. This one's the weirdest looking one mm-hmm. on the Muppets, I have to say. Um, I, I don't know. It's just a weird floating child. I don't know how Michael Caine's able to to act with it, but that's okay. He did it. Um, he. <laughs> I feel like. Um, it certainly, I think each of them in particular represent sort of the times that they're about to show Ebenezer. Mm-hmm. And so I think with this one, you really see him as a child as well as a transition to um, adulthood. And the flame, I'm not too sure because flames in gen well, I shouldn't say in general, oftentimes flames appear to show that there's something special about somebody or to potentially show wisdom. But that's if there's like a flame over somebody's head. So I don't know if it's like illumination <laughs> of, of the past and everything, but I, I feel like it's, it's a child because um, it's reflecting back. And you know, to when he is younger, so it's mimicking the the time that it will show to Ebenezer. Yeah, I think, and that's that's what I had the the idea of nostalgia. Yeah, and um, that there's an innocence to that nostalgia. Then you have this this um, ghost of Christmas present, mm. and he's basically he's holding a torch. Dressed with a laurel and a, and a robe, um, partying it up like a holly jolly, almost Saint Nicholas like. Um, I don't want to say Santa Claus because that's a slightly more modern interpretation of uh, of what what we're used to in terms of Santa Claus, but it is very like you know festive, like. But then again, it matches up with what he is um, what he is showing. Uh, Scrooge. He's showing Scrooge all of the festivity of London, as yeah. well as the you know 
contrasting that with the with the down and out parts of London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this night, this Christmas Eve night, is is a special night, and mm-hmm. this is when everybody gathers and everybody has um, a feast, and you're alone, and you have no one. Scrooge may or may not be getting that point. No, it is. Well, it's supposed to be sure. very sad, but yeah, but that's but that's that's basically like you know, the future's the the past the the present's the party guy. Yeah, but I wonder also if um, even though you can see sort of Scrooge freaking out a little bit, I wonder if there's some cynicism in him still here because this spirit is able to throw some sort of. It's not a chemical, but, you know, it's like sprinkling Mm -hmm. Christmas cheer on others. And so I wonder if in Scrooge's mind he's thinking, well, you know, why don't these people just have Christmas cheer on their own? Why are you manipulating them? I don't know if he thinks that or not. But um, because I I think it was maybe in the I don't want to mix up. That's a bad thing about watching adaptations after you read it. You don't want to mix things up. But I remember there was some sort of uh, fight going on. I think it was in the Muppets. And then he like sprinkles and then they're all cheery and everything. But this guy is he's almost like Father Christmas. He's the embodiment of Christmas. Um, He he was my favorite, I think, of the three in, in the the actual Muppets adaptation just because how jolly he is and yeah I think it it works really well to to show what Christmas is and should be like and I think you know it's still probably pretty hard for Ebenezer to understand it completely yeah um and then we have the ghost of Christmas few uh, yet I uh-huh. want to say future but it is yet to come and um why is this a hooded phantom that doesn't talk and what would change if the future couldn't simply answer Scrooge's questions? Because the ghost of Christmas uh, has to come never says a word. Sure, yeah. I uh, I like this mainly because I have an image of it <laughs> on my wall at school. But it's because the image is the hooded black figure is supposed to be Caron that, that um, rose people across the river sticks in the underworld. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think it's apropos because uh, the future for him currently is that uh, he's going to die. He's going to die alone and miserable. So I think it, it's not going to, it's not a happy outlook. And so I think it needs to be dark. And un- unfortunately, all the things that it shows are really sad and depressing. Mm-hmm. So again, it's mimicking all those visions, you know, all these people are really hateful towards him. Um, whether he deserves it or not is, is, uh, I guess up to the reader's imagination. But you know, those people that have stolen his things and are sort of casting lots for them almost or selling them to that one guy, presumably it's his stuff. It never comes right out and says it. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that he does not speak, I think, adds to the suspense and the terror. Because uh, when you don't get answers, I think you start to freak out more because your imagination is going wild and almost your imaginings are <laughs> worse than the truth. Yeah. And, so, and you can really, I think... Fear, feel the dread and terror that Ebenezer is going through at this moment because all you know, all these spirits are a little 
um, uncomfortable for him. But this one's the worst. And he's like, please don't make me go towards, you know, the gravestone and, and, or, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't the gravestone, the body, you know, and then I think it was the gravestone, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's best that he doesn't speak. Yeah. I, and I agree with you because, like, it, it shows, um, there are dire consequences for Ebenezer and those around him, uh, who he directly affects as a result of the life he leaves and the ac- leads and the actions he takes. Um, I looked up the Grim Reaper yeah. um, to find out when that, if that would have been something that people in the Victorian England were familiar with. And they would have, according to just a quick search. So, you know, the veracity of my source being what it is, says that the, the first appearances of the Grim Reaper in terms of this personification of death date back to the 14th century, which would have probably been, what, plague time? So um, this idea of the ghost of future yet to come literally looking like death, yeah, it does hammer that point home, especially to him. And it's this great example of showing and not telling. And I think that if Scrooge had, if if Dickens had had uh, the Ghost of Christmas yet to come say things, it wouldn't have had as much of an impact on Scrooge. And you're right, like he had to see this for himself, and that was the, you know, the final no BS, no no beating around the bush, no pixie dust, no you know silly memories or anything like you know you will end up. Dying alone and unloved in a and and nobody will ever come to visit your grave and nobody will miss you when you're gone. And not only yeah. that, this child is going to die. Which is which is a, another question we had. Like, what is ti- who is Tiny Tim? Like, okay, Tiny Tim is Bob Cratchit's son, and he's crippled and he's very sickly. What does he represent? What is the meaning behind this character? <laughs> Uh. <sighs> this, this one's a hard one because I, I think. Um, Do you want me to refine my question? No, no. I just think I, I'm having trouble answering it. I, I, I I've looked at this before, okay. and I was trying to come up with an answer. And uh, can I? Why don't you go first? Well, yeah, can I? Jump. Can I? Can I further ask? Okay, is tiny sure. is tiny Tim a Christ figure? Oh, wow. The innocent who will die and whose death will be a way to show sinners the error of their ways and redeem them. Is he sort of a Christ figure? I would like you <laughs> you answer while I consider this. I was wondering. That's that that was the question that, that was what I was wondering. Like cuz I was looking at like he's this child um, who is completely innocent without blame and um, kind of inadvertently winds up just taking it's, it's almost like all of the guilt that Scrooge has pent up in him gets projected onto him and learning of his death. And he feels responsible. So the tiny Tim like in a, in a sense, like to redeem this person who is not great, who is following one of the deadly sins, greed, um, may die, but the shot of redemption will help this kid live. So there's a 
I don't know. There was something in there that you know, he's he's not adult enough to say that like you know the way he's lived his life is that you know he is a you know a Christ figure in that classical sense. But there's a there's a sort of to me there's something in there that suggests that there's that there's that um that like that some symbolism in there. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. I guess my problem with it is that um, it's it's not definite that it's going to happen. And so it's, I don't know. I almost wish that if he if he actually died in, in the present um, and then Scrooge turns around, but because it doesn't even, there's only a chance that it will happen unless Scrooge turns around. But I guess that's the whole point of being a Christ figure is that this vision of him potentially dying is, is what turns him around. Yeah. Cause, um, I'm trying to find the part of the book where, where the ghost, he asked, he does ask the ghost of Christmas present about, um, about tiny Tim. Yeah, because that's when he sees his interactions with his family yeah, and everything. Yeah. Part of me also wondered whether it gets back to because I, I didn't really think about the Christ like figure at all. Whether it gets back to your question regarding economic status, mm-hmm. and it really gives a physical representation of uh, what the have-nots might go through um and just the fact that he was born this way and there's really no way to fix it and without proper care he will die and that's just sort of what happens and the only people who would care about it would be those that would be closely related to them but it's going to be this is something that daily happens to the have-nots yeah and and that's and that's what is echoed in what the what the ghost of christmas present says he says, okay, so Bob proposed, they're, they're at dinner, Christmas present. Bob proposed a Merry Christmas to us, all my dears, God bless us. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. Um, he sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. Mm. No, no, said Scrooge. No, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he better do it. And decrease the surplus population. Scrooge okay. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit, and was overcome with penitence and penitence. Sorry, and grief. And um, he goes on a little bit after that, like you know, the, the ghost rebukes him some more. And so the you're right. It doesn't. This future doesn't necessarily happen the way it's going to because you know mm-hmm. Scrooge fixes it at the end, but. The ghost of Christmas days to come needs to show how dire his consequences are, so he's showing them the worst case scenario. But what is also, you're right, is inevitable, and it does go back to that have, have nots, that economic um, disparity in the commentary that Dickens is offering. Like, people are dying, and people like Ebenezer Scrooge don't care. Yeah. Because people like Ebenezer Scrooge only care about what's in it for them. 
I wonder why the quick turnaround with him. Like all of a sudden, he's he has this camaraderie and love for the Cratchit family. I don't know if it's a camaraderie and love for the Cratchit family, or if it's it's at least for Tiny Tim. But I just think he never realized that Bob Cratchit lives like that, because he never thought of Bob Cratchit other than an employee who he had to have around because he needed to help anybody was paying the guy and he hated so he thought of Bob Cratchit as an employee and as a burden. And he's now seeing Bob Cratchit as an actual person. Which is something that is effective because Dickens' criticism probably is that these rich people look down upon the masses and they would never ever see them as individual people. They would never humanize him. They are just them, the poor who mm-hmm. mooch off society. They don't pay enough taxes. They they suck off the government. Why can't they take care of themselves and put themselves up by their bootstraps? They are not Bob Cratchit. They are they. They are them. They are not human people. So it's it's a it's a classism, you know, and that's that's a prejudice that people as rich as Ebenezer Scrooge have against people as poor as Bob Cratchit. So you, he needs to see the individual, and he needs to see the family, and it breaks his heart. And then he realizes the consequences that go beyond him to this family because of what he does because he directly affects Bob Cratchit's family I mean he doesn't directly kill Tiny Tim but he barely pays Bob Cratchit Bob Cratchit is the breadwinner in that family and Ebenezer Scrooge can help Tiny Tim by paying his father a fair wage Mm -hmm. you know so if he showed little Billy (laughs) oh my over it you know I don't know Troy's house, you know, (laughs) we, and and he's like, who the hell is this? Like, it wouldn't have been as effective, but here's something that directly affects you. Sure. What do you think his his backstory has to do with this? Like his father, his sister, and Mm. is that really, we do get a little bit of that. Is that really important? How important is that? I felt like it was important to give a sense of who he was before this, because uh, I think, Well, it's interesting now because sometimes I complain about this, but in comics, uh, I think there's been a really big push to humanize and give uh, sympathy towards villains. And uh, certainly, I think Scrooge is an antagonist protagonist in here, Um, but you kind of wonder how he came to be this way and if he was always this way because if if he were always this way i think that the change would be nearly impossible um just because it's been bred so deep but once you you go back and i I think you know i shouldn't say impossible but like nearly did i say nearly impossible nearly impossible because it's just hard to to change if that's all you've ever known but once we go back and see that he he loved his family but there was something tough going on back there is his father didn't really want him there for whatever reason. And then, uh, you know, being alone on Christmas, we can see, you know, maybe there's that bah humbug, but having uh, really rejoicing when his little sister came and, and brought him home. And then you see, again, Fezziwig. So you see that Scrooge was not always this curmudgeon. He, uh, you know, he was happy and he <laughs> he was joyful, but, but money sort of snagged his heart, I think. 
So I, I like seeing that because you see, oh, he wasn't always like this, but you also start to see him on the decline. And then you're like, oh, well, that's how he became Ebenezer. So it, it all makes sense, I think. And it also is more realistic that he's able to change because it's something that he had experienced before, maybe not fully, but he's he's had a relationship with family and love and, and Christmas in the past. Yeah. I think that um, I think you're right. I just think I, I talked earlier about how like Scrooge has a, people like Scrooge and Scrooge himself have a void that they're trying to fill, and and Dickens gives us just enough to know where that void comes from. That there's something missing there. That he's psych- he's psychologically damaged, and I think that's important. Now Dickens did not go into a whole chapter you know it was done it was done succinctly enough and he didn't go full sure. victor because victor hugo goes into oh, like yes. in, in les miserables you get the backstory of of course jean valjean but like Dernardier yeah. and, and javert and like all these characters yeah. which in some cases is fascinating and it's way more fascinating than like herman melville's chapters on like all of the things about the whale in Moby Dick, but mm-hmm. but at the same time, Dickens just gives us just enough for us to know, but not slow the pacing of the book down. And I, mm-hmm. I, that's one of the things I like because, like, he's he's just he's so you do start to feel bad for him. You do start to realize that there's way more to this person than what's essentially a stereotype of a greedy person. Sure, and I think that is where you start to hope that he will reform. And that was one of the questions we had is like, are we supposed to want him to reform? Because in a protagonist, in in a story like this, naturally or by law of storytelling, you're supposed to want the protagonist to overcome his problems. Right. Just Mm -hmm. in general. Sure. With, with Scrooge personally, I, want him to reform. I want him to come out okay at the end. I don't think he needs to, quote, get what he deserves, but I think there, I don't know, maybe there are some people out there who are disappointed in the ending. They think that Scrooge needs a comeuppance. What do you think? I hope not. I don't, I think if you are, (laughs) if this is a Christmas novel, I don't think it should end on a, a dour note. So I think our hope is that this character changes and he is able to learn from what has happened. Otherwise, you know, it's all pointless uh, of the, uh, you know, the spirits visiting him and he turns out to be like Marley. And I think uh, the novel would be completely different because I think his reactions, he'd be like a dud when all these are visiting him. He would have no emotion whatsoever when he was contacted by these Mm -hmm. spirits, I think. And uh, just have hard heart, and that'd be no good. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he changed. I mean, that's what you're hoping for. You want him to get back. You want to get back to the Ebenezer that we saw before. I'm just hoping that it's not a one day, one day only thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, he he pursues it to the end. Uh, but it, it was such a, it was like a literal come to Jesus moment. <laughs> That I think hopefully he does hold on to it, you know. Yeah, and I think this is important too because I don't think this is Schadenfreude. I think this is um, if you take away Scrooge's money, you have someone who has essentially become very, very self-centered. Sure. And that could be you, or that could be me, or that could be anybody in this audience. You don't have to have money to be a self-centered jerk, mm. and 
what Scrooge is seeing is the error of that self-centeredness and the error, error of putting up the walls that he's put up. And it has manifested itself in greed. And yeah, like I think we want him to reform because he's, that's how we identify with him. We see some of what he is like in ourselves. You know, some of the sentiments he says and that the ghosts are back in him, I've heard from people. I've heard from people in my family, you know, and I'm just like, when you really hear what you're saying, you realize how horrible you're being. And mm. so this is a chance to be redeemed. This is as us as an audience to get, you know, to get a lesson out of it. Um, I agree with you that I hope that he goes on beyond. Now, according to the novel, last lines of the novel, he lived like this through the rest of his days. So we're supposed to believe that this was it. This was permanent. He, he was generous. He was kind. He was loving. Not just Christmas Day, but the day after, and the day after, and the day after, all the way until he died. And, and he was a complete 180. And it's my hope as well that somebody could reform that way. And maybe this is a flawed personal philosophy, but I think that you show that you genuinely happens it when it genuinely happens, somebody shows it without declaring it, you know, like somebody could come up and say, well, I'm a changed person and they're really not. They're just saying they are, you know, no more of this, no more of that, you know? And then there's the person who just does it. You know, who who understands and says to themselves, you know, I need to change. I need to do things differently. And I know that my actions, to use a cliche, my actions do speak louder than my words. And I think that's what Scrooge does. That convinces me, at least on some level, that he does through the rest of his days. Um, you know, become a generous person and, and live a much richer life. What do you think? I hope so. Do you want to talk a little bit about Dickens' style before we uh, before we head out into feedback, etc.? Um, we talked a little bit of how concise this is, but he's God. There's two things we had specific questions on. One, the number of long descriptions of scenery and character, which I think we kind of covered. Unless you had anything else to add. Um, what about? Did you already just say this? <laughs> Him peeking in. I was just about to say that. Okay. Um, yeah, the other thing, him peeking into the story. Um, the, yes. the only thing I'll add for scenery and character is just to reiterate the fact that I love how some people just forget all the downtrodden descriptions he has in this and focus on how pretty and cozy it is to have this home, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and have Christmas villages, um, ceramic Christmas villages. Hi, Mom. Uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, so there are points in the story, and it's already like right at the beginning too, where Dickens himself offers some commentary here sure. and there. Um, do you find that distracting? Um, it depends. I was actually refreshing my mind because I'm the one who I think wrote this question, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because we just did Jane Eyre, and Charlotte does a similar thing, mm -hmm. but I feel like Dickens is more intrusive. I think with Charlotte, and we, we both agreed on this, she was peeking in, or she was, I mean, she's the narrator the entire time, yeah. so she's using I and everything, but you could tell that it was present 
Charlotte whenever she would add more detail that young Charlotte. Oh, I'm sorry. You, it's, okay. Charlotte as Jane. <laughs> you knew that it was Jane, present Jane talking whenever it's the same, past it, Jane would not have known it, what was going on. It was on. the same person talking about themselves in the past. Correct. The same way that you have Scout yes, Finch. Yes. With this, yes. Dickens is a third party. Yes. It's and not an this, old Ebenezer so, talking yeah. about a slightly younger Ebenezer. Right. And there was one time um, that it worked okay when I think he's looking at his past beau and her husband and wife. And he said, oh, I wish I could have been there. And that worked fine. But there was another one that was later on that uh, it really took me out of it. And I was confused, actually, because I was looking for quotation marks because all of a sudden it went from – you know, third person mm-hmm. to I, first person. And that is, that sometimes is startling for me. Like, I really have to go, I have to go back and figure out what's happening. So the first time was fine, but there there was one, and I can't, I, I couldn't find it again. But that was very jarring for me. So I didn't like it as much. Though I can see what he was doing, but I didn't like it. I agree with you. I think that's, and I think I, I'm trying to remember what you're talking about because I think I felt the same way, and I think I was wondering if Dickens was a little bit too in love with the sound of his own voice, in a matter of speaking, in, in that way, like his own narrative voice, and um, and so I, so I, yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. In some places it worked, in some places it doesn't. Um, but in no novel is absolutely perfect either. So. You know, in in the grand scheme of things, we both really enjoyed this. Um, Last question, of course, the question that we always ask before we go to our feedback session, which is, would you teach this? Now, I'm going to kind of set this aside slightly and say that I have taught this in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, I may consider it teaching it again if the timing worked out for what we were doing with my AP students, because I think it's a very, very worthwhile look. Um, and I would teach it in context of certain like history and economics in the Victorian period. What about you? I would. Yes. I think I'm just trying to think of grade level. Because it's very, it's more readable, I think, than other Dickens yeah. novels. But I might actually push it to high school, mm-hmm. and it'd be interesting to potentially have it um, with the twelfth grade level. I think it'd be interesting to compare because I think AP is British literature, isn't it? Um, mostly. Okay, so it'd be interesting to to compare uh, with that. But yeah, I just wonder. If even though it is readable for younger younger audiences, if they would get as much out of it, I wonder if there's another book that would pair well with it that sort of deals, yeah, you know, with question. with these sorts of topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you said, you know, Great Gatsby. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if that would be a, a good pair or something, but completely different centuries, but you know, similar wealth and things going on there. That's a, that's a good question. I the actually the one of the things that you might pair it with might be Karl Marx, mm. even though th- there's no direct connection between the two. Um, but this criticism that Dickens has of the capitalism within England, which is the cr- same critic, which is on some level or similarly, <laughs> like Alan's going to be like. No, <laughs> the finance professor. I hope I hope he emails in from from wherever he is. Um, sing, sing. Uh, How could you forget? So, I 
<laughs> think that Dickens and Marx have some of the same criticisms. Now, <laughs> they both go in different directions. But if you're looking at, like, you know, if you want to... Das Kapital is, like, really, really thick. Uh, the Communist Manifesto is thin. But if you want to, like, look at that sort of economic theory versus, like, what Dickens is saying here and kind of, like, put them against each other, that might be a pretty worthwhile, um, like, advanced uh, read. Um, for little kids, I think you could read, like, a younger version of the story and talk about, um, you know, morals and, and behaviors and, you know, doing what's right and being generous and being kind. Um, you may, it could be used to teach empathy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, things like that. And you might not read the... Something sorely lacking. Oh, God, yeah. Um... <laughs> But no, I mean, that's a whole other discussion for a whole other conversation. But at the same time, like you you could teach this to younger kids. You might not use the exact text. You might have to use an abridged or or um, an adapted version of some way of of the text or something for younger readers. But I think it's 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 lessons contained within are still are still very important to all ages. It'd be interesting to teach it to do like a team project and someone teach it at a, a private school that perhaps caters to more wealthy clientele mm-hmm. and then have another teach uh, it at a um, like a less less you know people who have less yeah. and see what sort of uh, perspectives the, the students get out of it interesting yeah it'll be interesting shall we go to feedback yeah absolutely okay. We have an e- we have some comments and then an email from Robert Ward on March and he did send us an email about Jane Eyre but we're gonna post that next episode. I, I was ready to defend Jane Eyre. Now you're telling me I don't have to. Uh, not yet. Next episode. Okay. <laughs> we, I hope I remember. It just thing. it just came in under the wire and uh, and and we have sure. a, we have a decent amount here. So um, do you want me to read these since you've been talking? Yeah, about yeah, yeah. Time? So uh, go right ahead. Okay. Three comments on the post about March. Uh, oh, 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 okay, okay, okay. From Robert Ward. I think not paying bail is an example of a brilliant war tactic, but one that's easily overlooked. I, too, was surprised by it, but as the story progressed, I was really stunned by how great it is and how obvious it should be. Not, It's not only a great way of refusing to support the corrupt system, but as a tactic to strain and challenge the militant police force. They may think they can just prove a point and show their dominance by arresting the protesters, but ultimately, they will face the terrifying terrifying truth that they can't they will eventually be overwhelmed and come to the realization that they can't just arrest every challenger they get as we get a hint of this then to me specifically i guess stella moose tom touched on that drugs could be used as a distraction but if i may suggest something if you've never read or watched i highly recommend beasts of no nation the original novel or the film with uh is it Idris Elba or Idris? Idris. Okay, Idris Elba on Netflix. Beasts is a very dark, haunting look at a child soldier in a war-torn African country. In it, it is briefly touched upon how they use a drug concoction called Brown Brown. Slightly more nefarious, use of drugs during perpetual war could be used as for not just coping as well as sl- enslaving. 
It doesn't quite fit the context that drug use in Vietnam was brought up, but when Tom mentioned drugs, I just flashed back to the film and the novel I listened to almost immediately afterwards. It's really good, but heart-wrenching. I don't remember the drug context in that in March. Um, we were talking about Vietnam... And you were asking me, I believe, of whether or not there were race relations issues. Uh, oh, okay. Yep, yep. And then I, like in each company? Yeah, and then I also okay. mentioned the fact that there were um, there was a serious amount of drug use as well. Um, oh, I must have been shocked at this. Yeah, or something like okay. that. I would also, to add to Beasts of No Nation, I would also add the book A Long Way Gone by Ishmael... Bea, Bea, B-E-A-H. Um, he was a child soldier in uh, mm. Sierra Leone, civil, civil war in Sierra Leone. And a lot of what he is talking about in, in Beast of No Nation, there's, there's similarities between the two, and it's a really, really good book. So I, I would recommend that. It's a really good memoir. Yeah, I watched uh, – I haven't watched it, but I've heard good things about it, so I guess I should sit down and watch it. Uh, okay, continuing on with his email, you're not wrong. I watched Silver Linings Playbook in the theaters, and after I finished with Eleanor in the park, I thought back to that scene and weighed if it was a physical book instead of an audio book, would I chuck this across the room, if not out the window? Uh, that is one of my favorite scenes, I thought. Uh, so then to Tom, he says, to better clarify the scene, when the film starts, Bradley Cooper's character is fresh off a complete breakdown. He suffered from undiagnosed mental slash emotional issues that help lead to the deterioration and end of his marriage. He's trying to get his life back on track, though, now, with the grand idea that he can win his wife back. As a teacher, he figured he would read the books she teaches to help get closer, but in his current emotional state, he acts badly when confronted with the down ending of Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. The exchange after he throws the book out the window is actually pretty funny. He insists that he did nothing wrong, and if anyone is at fault, it's Ernest Hemingway. His father is played by a favorite of David O. Russell's Robert De Niro. Yeah, he like runs up to his parents' room afterward, because he like breaks the window. That's pretty fun. I have it if you want to borrow it. So uh, then we have. Uh, he sent this an email after the um, after the Facebook post. Huh? Oh, okay. So it's still Robert. Yeah, Ward. it's still Robert. Our, our uh, scholastic, scholastic book, buddy. book buddy. Yes, he says, Dear Tom and Stella, March was a fantastic read and your coverage was equally fantastic. From the very beginning, I was wishy-washy on whether or not the artwork was suitable, but it doesn't matter. This is another prime definition of required, required reading. reading. The only issue was that I began reading the series the week of the NFL. Ah, kneeling protests began with all the emotion resulting from the real world and then this amazing piece of work. I'm just drained. I have nothing more to say and think I'll just crawl back into a ball again and cry some more. Amazing work. Five stars. Darn you, Tom. <laughs> well, there was um, right around the time I picked this, I believe was it was in the middle of August, right? Correct. So the stuff was going on. In yeah. So we, we both live in Charlottesville. So you had the um, the August 12th uh, rally in um, in downtown, and then the uh, the very tragic death of, of Heather Heyer, and that has and and the the racial issues in the racial issues in Charlottesville go back decades. Let's not mince words here, but the most recent flare up around centering around Civil War statues goes back several months, um, and is something that 
we won't get into in, into too detail, but you can um, you can read about it if you go back all the way to like if you go on the, our local news site NBC29.com. There's a fair amount of of, of coverage because if there's anything that they've covered like over and over and over and over again, it's the statues in the two parks in, in downtown Charlottesville. Um, but yeah, so I, I did pick that on purpose because it was something that was on my mind. And so I overruled, um, and I think you had been reading it. I can't remember if you had yes. mentioned that you yeah, had I, started I on like trip, one so of them. Was, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I, so I was like, yeah, let's go ahead and do March. So that's, um, that's why I picked it. But you're right. It, it, I will tell you, and this is one of those things where like, sometimes I feel guilty, but when I say this, because it makes me sound like I'm being all ignorant about things, but there are times where I will need to completely step away from the news because, um, or, or completely just get some sort of escapist sure. entertainment, which is why I wear, watch my fair share of reality competition television. Because, no, because, like, it, Robert's right. It chopped. Chopped. Um, <laughs> Brett loves Chopped Jr., by the way. Project Runway, Top Chefs Coming Back, The Great British Baking Show. Oh, my God, what a great show. Um, but Robert's right. You just get drained. You, you, you need to take care of yourself in some way. So that's why, you, but, but then there are some times where things are happening in the news and you understand them, but on some level you want to understand them even more. And something like March really, really helps, even though it's about history, it really does apply to today. So, um, but I totally understand about being drained. Like I want to crawl in a book, like just, sure. I want to go away right now. So, um, but Speaking of picks, we have come to the end of the story, the end of the story, and the end of our episode. So, before yeah. we say goodnight, Stella, what yeah. are we reading for next month? Yeah, did you say speaking of pigs? No. Okay. Well, normally uh, I am the uh, the pig to Tom's goat, which doesn't make any sense unless you've watched Gravity Falls. Goat and a pig. And understand Tom and I, my friendship. But this time, Tom's going to be the pig, and I'm going to be a spider. So for next month, we are reading Charlotte's oh, Web by E. B. White. I love this book. <laughs> oh yay! E. B. White's so one of my favorite writers. Oh yay! Cool. <laughs> So my revenge books are on the shelf for right now, but they could make a return. So okay, cool. Charlotte's Web. All right. Um, yeah. So we will have that in store for you in January. Until then, um, this is coming out a couple of weeks before Christmas. So please um, have a happy and safe and wonderful Christmas or holiday season, no matter what you, what you celebrate. Um, and, uh, and a happy and healthy, uh, new year. Yes. And be kind to others, not only on Christmas, but outside of Christmas as well. Take a page from Ebenezer Scrooge's change. Yes. Good night. Good night. Once 
Required reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true. That's two true things. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. If you haven't got a penny, then a hay will do. If you haven't got a hay